Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Spanish True Crime, a podcast dedicated to covering true crime stories from Spain. My name is Natalia, and I want to bring to you fascinating cases you have probably never heard about. In this first episode, I will be covering a case that had the entire city of Barcelona in a state of panic for weeks, and that will probably make you see parking lots in a different light. You're going to hear the story of the Puchet Killer. Our story starts on the 11th of January of 2003 in the city of Barcelona. To be more precise, in the neighborhood of Puchet, situated in the district of Sarria San Gervasi, a predominantly upper-class part of the city. Maria Angel Ribot was 49 years old and a mother of four. Like many people who live in the city, she rented a parking spot in an underground private parking lot in Bertrand Street. Her family started to get worried when she didn't show up at home that night at her usual time. She hadn't warned them about being late, and it wasn't like her to just disappear like that. Two of her kids went to the parking lot to search for her. Sadly, they were the ones to find her and call the police. Her body was found hidden at the bottom of the stairs people used to move between the different floors of the parking lot. Her head was wrapped in a black plastic bag. She had stab wounds all over her body, but the cause of death was blunt trauma to the head. She had defended herself fiercely, but her attacker had been brutal. Investigators also found a butt of a cigarette next to the body, as if the murderer had smoked it after committing the crime. There were also two footprints on the floor, one on the victim's dress and another cigarette nearby. Spanish National Police took over the investigation of the case. At first, it seemed like a robbery gone wrong, because a perpetrator had stolen her bag. But a lot of things didn't make sense, and the suspicion there was more to it was confirmed when the husband of the victim got a text that same night, after the body had already been found. It came from his wife's phone, and it said, I'll call you tomorrow. The parking lot where the crime had been committed was an easy place to trap someone. It had six floors, and in most places you couldn't get any signal. The parking lot where the crime had been committed was an easy place to trap someone. It had six floors, and in most places you couldn't get any signal. It would have been easy for the killer to threaten and let the victim down their stairs until they were cornered in the last floor and hide the body in the small space under the stairs. Police started looking into the victim's credit card records and they found the killer had used them. He had taken 3,000 euros from an ATM on Balmas Street. There had been another attempt at an ATM on Brook Street. He wasn't able to get any money out there, but the security cameras got a picture of him. It was not enough to identify him, but it was to know he was a young white man they were looking for. The following Sunday, Investigators noticed he tried to use another ATM, this time at the Ramblas, and this time the car got blocked. When the police retrieved it, they found a fingerprint on it, but it wasn't clear enough for it to be useful. Meanwhile, the autopsy confirmed the crime weapon had been a hammer. They were able to identify it was a special kind of hammer, used in construction to make molds. The autopsy also showed how the killer had acted with brutality, not killing the victim immediately, but prolonging her suffering. Two days after the crime, Mariangel's husband got a phone call from a man saying he had information about it 
and he asked for 2,000 euros. The police asked him to play along, thinking it might be the killer that was calling him. They were able to get some information from these phone calls. He seemed to be a young man, fluent in Catalan and spoke in an educated manner. They were also able to track which phone booths he had used to make those calls. The husband received another phone call the next day, during the funeral. He was asked to leave the money in the bathroom of a bar situated at the center of the city called Barenostrum. The husband, advised and backed by the police, followed his instructions, but no one showed up. After that, there were no more phone calls. Forensic evidence was also useless at the moment, since they didn't have a suspect to match it with, and the investigation seemed to hit a dead end. But no one could have predicted what would happen next. Eleven days later, another body was found in the same parking lot, in very similar circumstances. The victim was another woman, around the same age and also a blonde. Investigators almost couldn't believe it. Maite de Diego was 46 years old and she was the co-owner of a gym. She rented the parking spot labeled with the number 15 on the first floor. The first victim spot had the same number but on the fourth floor. In both cases, it was right next to the door that led to the stairs. Maite had told her husband she didn't feel safe going to get her car that very same day, even suggested taking a knife with her, but he laughed it off. He couldn't have imagined he would find her body that same night. The crime had been committed at 4 p.m. in the middle of the day. Her body was found in the same spot, and the cause of death was, again, blunt force trauma to the head. She had been gagged using a rope and a copy of La Vanguardia, a popular newspaper, from January 17th. After the second murder, panic spread across the city. People didn't feel safe, especially in the neighborhood of Puchet. Police feared there would be a third victim, and the pressure to catch a now-suspected serial killer was high. Even the Spanish Minister of Internal Affairs called to check on how the case was going, but they still didn't have a suspect. The hunt of the killer started again. Just like with the first victim, he had stolen Maite's bag and tried to get money using her credit cards, even going to some of the same ATMs he had tried before. Following his trail through security cameras, the police were able to get a better picture of him at Padua train station. They got some more footage of him at another ATM near Plaza Catalunya, at the very center of the city. They were also able to identify a distinctive feature, a particular balding spot on the top of his head but they still had no idea who he was. Meanwhile, it had leaked to the press that the police had at least a picture of him, and every journalist was desperate to get that photo. The investigators decided to go back to the bar where he had made the first victim's husband go, suspecting he could be a regular there. The police started surveilling the bar, waiting. Then a young man walked in. He knew the bartender and started playing pool. He looked strikingly similar to the man in the security camera footage. When they noticed the light reflecting on the balding spot on his head, they knew it was him. But they still didn't have enough to arrest him, so they just identified him, asking for his ID under the pretense of a false investigation about robberies in the area. His name was Juan José Pérez Rangel. He was 24 years old and lived with his parents at La Mina, a humble neighborhood in the city of San Adrià, 
right next to Barcelona. He was put under 24-7 police surveillance. They followed him as he spent his days aimlessly walking around the city. Police investigation revealed he was in debt, but a few days before the first death, he had quit his job without giving any explanation. Most importantly, they were also able to find that, some time ago, he had rented a spot for a motorbike at the underground parking lot for a few months. He had also kept the keys that gave access to it. By then, a lot of journalists already knew the name of the suspect, and the police decided to arrest him before the information inevitably got out. They arrested him at Ronda Litoral, one of the main highways to access and travel across the city. Police were shocked at his cold demeanor when they first started interrogating him. He slowly started talking about facts that pointed him as the perpetrator. Forensic evidence finally came into play, and they were able to identify fingerprints found at the crime scenes as his, as well as DNA traces from the cigarettes. They also conducted a search of his home. His house was normal until you opened the door to his room. It was a mess, full of garbage. They found newspaper articles from everything that had been republished about the murders. He had written secreto, secret, multiple times all over a newspaper cover that featured the case. However, the most important piece of evidence they found was a little notebook. It was full of annotations. He had written down when the neighbors left the parking lot the cars they used, their license plates, and all kinds of information to keep track of their routines. He had done so not only before the first murder, but also after the second one, and some neighbors even recalled seeing him around when the street was full of police officers and journalists. They found something else that linked him to the case. The plastic bags used in the crimes were the same his mother used at her job as a cleaner at an ice rink, which was very close to Barenostrum the bar he had been identified at, and where he had asked the husband to leave the money. After the search, which of course had to be conducted in his presence, he asked to bring a Lord of the Rings book with him back to his cell. He had to be escorted back to the police car, since there was an angry mob outside of the building, threatening and yelling murder at him. The police investigation found out something else that was quite curious. Apparently, Pérez Rangel had contacted an agency that facilitated weddings to Russian women. Looking for a Russian woman who loves animals and ice skating, his profile said. A woman arrived the same day he killed the first victim. He didn't show up at the airport to pick her up, and the director of the agency called him to ask where he was. He had already killed Marie Angels, and he probably was still at the crime scene when he answered. After that, he went to pick up the Russian girl, saying he hadn't been able to make it because of an issue with his car. The day the woman he was supposed to marry left to go back to Russia was the same day he killed the second victim. This whole Russian marriage agency plot probably was, as weird as it sounds, his attempt to secure an alibi for the murders. He kept claiming he was innocent during the whole trial despite all the evidence against him, and even pointed at the husband of the second victim as the real culprit. The poor man, who had of course just lost his wife, had shown his grief in a way that was a little peculiar, and some people called it theatrical. 
a theory spread that he had been the one to hire a hitman to kill his wife, and the first victim had been killed by mistake because of their similarity. If we didn't have as much proof against Rangel as we do, it would have been an interesting theory to explore, but given all the facts, it had little weight and no proof to back it up. The prosecutor believed, and she still does to this day, that Pérez Rangel is a serial killer. That made her even more determined to put him away, knowing he will be a danger to society if he got away with it. The jury found him guilty on all charges on 2004. He was sentenced to 59 years and two months of jail time for murder and robbery. Juan José Pérez Rangel is now 49 years old. He will be released in 2035, when he is 56 years old, since Spanish law at the time of the crime only allowed a maximum prison sentence of 30 years. Spanish police isn't really used to cases like this. To most people in this country, including them, a case like this sounds like something out of an American movie. That's why everyone was so shocked when the second victim was found. However, that doesn't mean the Puchet killer is the only serial killer in Spanish recent history by any means. If you're interested in finding out about other stories like this one, follow this podcast on whatever platform you prefer so you don't miss any new episodes. Please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at SPTrueCrime and Instagram at Spanish True Crime. You can send me an email at SpanishTrueCrime at gmail.com if you wish to contact me. See you next time.